From the Ojai Valley News, a deluge of medical marijuana dispensary and delivery service applications have flooded Ojai City Manager Steve McClary's office. 21 applicants have applied to create a storefront dispensary or delivery service in Ojai. And yes, one proposed business would like to call itself Ojai. Welcome back to the Townies Podcast. I am Kim Maxwell, and I am a Townie. I am a Townie who loves other people's stories. I teach a weekly writing and performance workshop here in my ridiculously small fishbowl of a town nestled in the foothills of Ventura County. And for 25 years, the raw and vulnerable musings of my brilliant and courageous students have sent me home filled with hope. Some of my beloved students are seasoned professionals. Some have never even been on a stage before. But there they are, up in front of a live audience, flinging themselves and their brand new words into the abyss. Their reward? They have been heard. They matter. Their words matter. And the audience? Well, they have just officially been granted permission to do the same to go out there somewhere and take a big old risk. And that is the sacred exchange between terrified storyteller and gracious audience member. Permission. I love people's stories because stories are what connect us. This is the Townies Podcast. Welcome to the neighborhood. Episode 8, The Agency of Women. The Agency of Women, written and performed by Emma Bailey. Emma is a tiny but ferocious beekeeper and aspiring chef who came to us from Minnesota many years ago. With a baby goat under her arm and a job at our beloved Bart's Outdoor Bookstore, Emma is a true Ohioan, even if she says beg instead of bag. And boy, are we lucky to have her. The Agency of Women is a 501c3 nonprofit located deep in the Amazon. Our headquarters serve as a pro-rudeness, pro-newness center of operations for both hemispheres. With a sustainable printing press, we publish the fire speech of fly-ass honeys everywhere. Our quarterly journal, Jungle Pussy, is distributed globally by bats. We are currently developing programs to increase the volume of women's voices by 50%. We cannot be reached for comment. We do not give interviews. We do not explain ourselves. Thank you for kicking us off, Emma Bailey. Next, we have Intellectual Revolution. Written and performed by Chiani Dri. This Afro-Argentine young parent advocate, activist, student, organizer, mom of two, might just be superwoman with her incredible sense of humor and her conflict resolution skills. It's people like Chiani that make me feel like we might be okay after all. My daughter put her arms around my neck, and she said, Mommy, you're brown. (laughs) She laughed, and she ran off before I could even respond. (laughs) And although it's been said by many before, in that moment, she coined the word for me, brown, 
as a description of who I am and as a means of explaining my position in the world, I am brown. The first time I ever noticed my race was when I entered my predominantly white middle school. And although I didn't understand why being brown made me so different, I definitely understood why being different made me feel. My mother had always made a point to help me understand where I was from. I knew my father was from Argentina, and my, mom, my mom's family was black, but because I only grew up with my mother, I was raised with a deep understanding of the power and beauty of blackness. A place where my identity slept, a safeness invested in my heritage and a wholeness shattered by this microcosm of our society, which was now my new all-white middle school. <laughs> when my daughter told me I was brown, it came as a shock in my system, like an award I'd never received because I am far more often reminded of my lack of blackness. <laughs> Black culture to most is this stereotypical big butt and dirty hip-hop <laughs> As if when I explain my roots, people just think that I show up to Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles every Sunday <laughs> after singing gospel songs in my Baptist church. <laughs> or that I've lived at least three different Tyler Perry movies. <laughs> and as if my roots must be the real-life representation of the plantation propaganda your white grandfather still has in the form of a glass figurine Sambo playing the banjo, happy to be a slave again. because I've never fit the stereotypical mold of a black person. And so the kids in middle school didn't know what to do with me. They decided to coin their own name for me, one that gave them a purpose for play and me a purpose for defeat. The name Sand Nigger. It followed me forever. No one knew my name was Chiani, and no one really cared because I couldn't pronounce it anyway. <laughs> I tend to think about how most white people love to lump all brown people together and rename them. Because she could be a Spanish speaker who isn't Mexican, or from a Native American tribe who built their homes from adobe and not teepees. And maybe from an African ethnicity who sold their own people to the white man for guns. But instead, we're lumped into three main groups, the Mexicans, Indians, and according to Donald Trump, the blacks. <laughs> Just like those kids in school who failed to understand that by lumping me into a group and renaming me Sand Nigger, they would strip me of the identity I had always known and gave me one I could never understand. The other night, I forced my boyfriend to watch the movie Dear White People. <laughs> I kept checking on him every 20 minutes just to make sure he wasn't asleep. <laughs> Which probably really annoyed him and made him feel like he, like I didn't feel he could really appreciate a movie about blackness. Sorry, Austin. <laughs> and just the other day, I involved myself in various Facebook debates about whether or not we should grant asylum to Syrian refugees. And I got really tired of reminding people of what's true, that those who kill others don't re represent any religion or race. They only represent individual people. Honestly, I forgot I was brown until my daughter reminded me. Because as of now, I have a lot of white friends. <laughs> and I never feel different when I'm with them. But I forget that when I walk out in the world, I am often mistaken for Indian or Middle Eastern and always as Muslim because far too many people don't know the difference. And I become self-conscious as if I'm always wearing a sign that says, I'm sorry, and it wasn't me, and it wasn't them. And I spend a lot of time defending brown people. And it hurts so much that sometimes I wish I never had to think about it at all. At times, I wish to be you, to be white, to be able to ask someone to stop talking about race, because that would be the privilege I've been granted to just not have to think about it anymore. Only two other students had arrived to my class when my ethics professor had arrived. A boy in my class told the professor how happy he was that he responded to his email so quickly. I laughed silently to myself, thinking about the two weeks it had taken our professor to answer any of my emails. And half-joking, I blurted out, yeah, for the white kids. <laughs> and we all laughed, you know, it was just a joke. I didn't actually think he responded to me differently because I'm brown. <laughs> but I do have to think about the realities that being brown brings for me and for others. And it hurts to feel faced with a history that's not my own. And so what would be my introduction today? Hi, I'm Chiani. 
I'm of mixed race, and I grew up in a black family. <laughs> but usually I'm asked about what kind of Indian food you should order, <laughs> and whether or not I'm Muslim. <laughs> I was tormented in school for being unidentifiably brown. My, my given name was replaced, and my first crush told me he didn't want to be with me because I was brown. My second crush, he told me he wanted to be with me because he, I reminded him of Kim Kardashian. <laughs> Still not great, you know. <laughs> um, I may not have a big butt or sing gospel songs in my all-black church. I may only think grape flavor is okay, and I'd probably choose any other fruit besides watermelon. But to me, those stereotypes are pretty shitty anyway. To me, black culture was having my favorite book growing up be a book about Kwanzaa, because being black to me was about admiring the framed poster of Billie Holiday above my mother's bed and having a bookshelf lined with books by James Baldwin. I mean, I remember the first time I watched Eyes on the Prize and the Black Power mixtape and claimed my deepest love for Stokely Carmichael, my one and only bae. <laughs> because I swore that Angela Davis was my mother in another life. <laughs> and on birthdays, we sang Stevie Wonder's Happy Birthday to Dr. King, because I sing Strange Fruit in the car when I'm alone. <laughs> we just heard from Chiani Dri. Counting Steps, written and performed by Deanna Pino. Once upon a time, a raven-haired, theater-loving, music-making corporate strategist living in L.A. decided she wanted to slow things down. So she came to Ventura to find some peace. Somehow, the stars aligned for Deanna and I to meet. And she has been rocking the studio with her profoundness ever since. Take me. Take me now. Your big, strong, burly lumberjack arms wrapped around me. I don't care that you've been in prison or you're a felon because you were just caught up with the wrong crowd and that you're making something of yourself after only being released for the last two weeks. I feel dizzy and warm and tingly all over, waiting for you to release my womanhood as you gaze deeply into my bottomless chasm. <laughs> Buy me a tiny house with plastic furniture and a toaster oven, and in the morning I'll scramble you some eggs and cook your bacon. And when you come home at night, I'll make sure your manhood is satisfied. I can feel my body shaking, waiting, waiting for you, baby. I used to read this shit as a teenager. <laughs> my Harlequins. <laughs> where I learned all about love and how to please my man, although I know for sure it goes much deeper than that. But my biggest influence was my asshole dad. Asshole butthole bitch. Did I say asshole? Mm-mm. I had so many people telling me to forgive and forget, but that didn't help me. The minute I try and put the past behind me, it was like invisible force, and there I was, married to Darth Vader all over again. <laughs> the force is strong with this one. <laughs> and just like that, I've been in training to be a Jedi ever since. It was winter, 1976. A nice Catholic girl from Orange County, California. I was eight years old and kidnapped by my daddy and on the run for three years. We were living in Israel, walking the Judean desert outside of Jerusalem in a wide open space. Daddy had snatched me from my elementary school one spring morning in March. He had told the principal there was a death in the family, but as far as I knew, I was going for ice cream. This was Jedi lesson number one. We weren't going for ice cream. I could feel the tiny pebbly sand whipping across my face as I hid my eyes under the visor of my hat. Through the hollowing wind, I could hear the earth crying out from the hot, dry, cracked dirt beneath my sweaty, sneakered feet. Off in the distance, we could hear the sound of machine guns echoing between the mountains and the flat desert. We had walked into hostile territory. Before my daddy could grab my hand and drag me behind a boulder, I could feel the sound of bullets flying past me and over my head. 
I was too scared to cry or piss my pants as we hid and hovered. Once the rage of bullets seemed to subside, we gingerly started to walk behind more rocks, just in case there was another outburst. Dragging my small, tired feet, I closed my eyes, and I took a breath, and I counted my steps. One, two, three, four, which helped me to forget that my daddy had no fucking idea what he was doing. I was on my own, but I loved him, and he was my world. Addicted to drama, his insanity, and his chaos. I will never know why he took me. I will never know why Israel. I will never know why sexual abuse. I just won't. How this would play out in my life was the never-ending gift of my daddy. Oh, there have been so many situations where I could just oh, kick myself and say, what are you thinking? But then it's like poisonous asshole gas <laughs> seeps through my cells, and I'm sleeping beauty with amnesia all over again, waking up to men I had no intention of sleeping with. Finding men like the one who wanted me to Titty twist his man boobs. <laughs> mm -hmm. <sighs> Unfortunately, given the opportunity to date a kind, sweet, boring, ordinary man, I choose dipwad titty twister every time. <sighs> I'm ashamed to even admit this out loud, but at the height of one of my many emotional bottoms many moons back, I was on the hunt to find true love. And I just went through my second divorce with my ex-gambler. I had fallen in love and found myself in a relationship with a polyamorous bipolar man. <laughs> I met him on OkCupid. <laughs> this emotional sobriety is harder than you think. <sighs> and from the depths of my life force, I could hear, run, Deanna, run, run far away from him. But I've been trained to stay, no matter what, soldier through flying bullets, hot, dry deserts, and a war zone, and those are not metaphors. I loved my polyamorous bipolar man. Oh, he was dark and beautiful. He was a walking PTSD flashback and gave flowers for no reason. He'd passionately grab my crotch during Django Unchained <laughs> and suddenly disappear for days. He was breakfast in bed and waking up in the middle of the night with his hands around my throat. The truth was, I liked the danger and the chaos. And it reminded me of my daddy. Between feeling like shit and feeling like more shit, so much that, so that when things ended a month later, I was in bed with a new guy. A Republican reptilian shapeshifter. <laughs> I met him on OkCupid, okay too. <laughs> Surprise! I was looking for true love. And I hadn't tried a Republican yet. <laughs> and he had the same vibe as my first ex-husband, who was a sex addict and loved his prostitutes on the corner of 34th and 10th when I lived in New York City. But reptilian guy was different. I told myself he was a financial advisor. Single dad, raising two kids, owned a beautiful house in Pasadena. He's safe. This is good. We're making progress. <laughs> but I still love my bipolar guy. One night, while visiting his office downtown in L.A., Republican reptilian shapeshifter guy wanted me to hold his loaded gun and fuck me on his desk at work like Fifty Shades of Grey. <sighs> this time I ran. Mm. I ran right back to bipolar guy. <sighs> I don't know why, but it seems safer than a loaded gun pointed at my face. I slept with two guys within 24 hours. I'm protected. I didn't want this. I wanted a family with a white picket fence. I tried to do everything right. Bought a condo in Studio City. Drove to my corporate job in my Volvo to Paramount Pictures every day. Spent time with my mom and my family. Growing my own roots. I was on my way. But now, I didn't even recognize myself. I was back to ground zero again. 
I was tired, tired of figuring it out. And if I knew how to do it, fuck, I would have done it. But I quit. I quit. And that was my truth. It was staring me in the face, full blown, and I had no choice. I was paralyzed. And it really hurt at the core of my being because this was not the woman I wanted to be. I think about that day in the desert. A military truck came to a screeching halt with two large men jumping out of the truck with rifles yelling for me and my daddy to get out into the truck immediately and airlifted me safely inside. I think about the officer with broken English yelling at my daddy, what was he doing there? And how did he get so far off the path? How did I get so far off the path? I survived the desert, bullets, incest, an international kidnapping that included 22 countries, and that's just the tip of the dysfunctional iceberg. <laughs> 18 years of separation from my mother, a mental breakdown landing me in a psych ward with two addicted ex-husbands, three miscarriages. I didn't go through all this just to fucking survive. I want to thrive. I want to thrive. I am thriving. I'm alive. I'm vibrant. And I have earned my right to talk about this. To take my time. To be easy on myself. Sing a little. Play a little guitar. Surf a little. I've earned my right to grab a lifeline, to close my eyes, take a breath, and count my steps. One, two, three, four. Thank you, Deanna Pinot. Hopeful, written and performed by Kathleen Helwitz, one of the most generous women I have ever had the pleasure of knowing. Kathleen has always had eyes for the stage. Now, on the light side of 80, she has found her voice. And damn it if she'll ever let it go quiet again. We love you, Kathleen. When Caro's closed, I wasn't the only one who was saddened. <laughs> Not because I'd miss the food, necessarily. But the waitresses were not just longtime friends, but more like family. There was Candy, Cindy, Rosa, Marisa. And who could forget Lauren, who, if she liked you, would always give you two scoops, not one, in your small Sunday, with extra chocolate and whipped cream and you never wanted her to not like you. <laughs> My grandchildren always enjoyed the meals we had there on kids' nights, complete with face painting, balloon animals, and placemats they love to color and play games on. Now it is called Beacon Coffee. <laughs> and I love the place. <laughs> they used the Chemex coffee maker I grew up with and hadn't seen in decades. Plus, they make sesame brittle to die for. <laughs> the coffee's terrific. Friday, I took my daughter there for a treat. Little did I know I'd be the one to get the treat. As we sat enjoying ourselves, an elderly gentleman asked if he could share our table. This happens a lot at Beacon. <laughs> of course, we welcomed him. As we made our introductions, I learned his name is George. But my ear told me this man is probably from the Middle East. Having spent over 20 years in that world myself, 
with my first and second husbands, my ear recognized the familiar lilt that I hadn't heard in far too long. Sure enough, George was born in Alexandria, Egypt, one year before me. George lives in Canada now. He has been an ambassador between the governments over the many, many years. We shared our respective stories, and as we did, it became amazingly unbelievable how many Egyptians both of us had known, how many places we had in common, and how many times our lives could have intersected. My late husband was an Egyptian who practiced psychotherapy in the Middle East as well as in the United States. Before coming to the States, he had counseled King Farouk, Presidents Nasser and Sadat. And when we traveled back to his roots, we often met and dined with members of the Egyptian parliament and other government officials who had been imprisoned by Nasser. Out of respect for one another, they all used, and the things they had endured, they still called each other by their prison numbers, the numbers they had to use instead of their given names. At this point, George and I spoke of our concern for our beloved Egypt, currently going through some rough waters, and George expressed his concern for us on our current electoral cycle. George just happened to be in Ojai with his daughter, who was going to do some business with a friend. And he had decided to stop in at Beacon for a light snack and some coffee while she was at work. It was definitely a comfort for him to come to a place of, at this table with people who had such an unexpected connection to him. We shared our sesame brittle with him and spoke at length about the Middle Eastern food that we all loved, famous landmarks, our favorite belly dancers, <laughs> and of course our grandchildren. And then we exchanged email addresses and as quickly as we had met, we parted ways. Who knows if or when we will enjoy such a special moment like that again. November 9th, 2016, the morning after. When I first heard it, I said to myself, I will never watch the news again, ever, <laughs> ever, ever. <laughs> Several of my neighbors who regularly walk past my house with their dogs were in tears at five and six o'clock in the morning. Their Medicare, their Social Security, who their daughter would live with when they got deported, or whether their marriage would be invalidated and what that would mean to the love of their life. I gave the dogs their usual biscuits and tried to encourage their owners to keep going, keep walking, and maybe let the dust settle a little bit before taking, making themselves sick with worry. Then I realized that their walk would most likely be significantly longer than mine. So my beautiful friends and dear neighbors, for that I am truly sorry. Be kind with yourselves. Be kind to those around you, and the do, do the best you can, especially now, to make room at your table for others. And that was Kathleen Helwitz. Next, Siete, written and performed by Litsi. A fiery, fierce, intelligent, thoughtful, sassy, dedicated Latina with her sights set on a law degree and equitable treatment for all. Litsi is truly inspiring to all who know her. I feel ever so lucky. Ever since I was small, I wanted to be an OBGYN, saving lives. But then they told me that I would have to perform a C-section on someone. That was automatically scratched. <laughs> then it scurried off to the profession of being a vet. But then they told me that I would see puppies die, and I was not ready after my dog of two days was also ran over. That was also scratched. But then I look at you, and I think to myself, all of that can be thrown away just so I could be a guerrera like you. You see, three months, two weeks, 
and 15 years ago, marked your arrival to a different country. It took you seven days, six nights to complete one voyage. The voyage where you jeopardize everything just so you can be in the land of the free. You've been told about this heaven, El Norte, all your life, and soon enough, you were ready to embark your journey. With tears rolling down your hollow gaunt cheeks, you say your farewells to your mother. You held her fragile, bony hands and looked her in the eyes with pain in your heart, and you tell her in Misteco, I love you. I'm off to a better life. You told her this not knowing that this was going to be the very last time you saw her from that point on. Noche una. Your heart is pounding fiercely in your chest, ready to explode because you just witnessed a pack of coyotes 200 feet away from you. The person holding his, your fate in his hands, the watchman, told you not to worry because it was only the beginning. You tried to escape the cruel reality at that moment, and as you walked, you recalled the most traumatizing moment in your life. You came back from school one day in hopes of finding a fresh loaf of bread in your 10 by 10 table. But instead, coming, you come home finding out that your best friend, your father, had passed away. Like his heart, your heart fell into a million pieces. That same heart that was pounding that night under the moon made you feel like your heart was failing. You were only 12. Noche dos. You felt like days have passed, but the watchman told you it's only been 24 hours. You were scared, stressed, and hungry. Hungry like the day you made the decision of going five states north of yours to work in the tomato fields. The person who hired you promised you $200 and a cow for three weeks of your labor. Oblivious, you accepted it. You were forced to grow up faster than your fragile bones and thin legs could catch up to. Unfortunately, the, mob, the monster of your sister-in-law ate the cow that was promised to you and lied to you, told you that, and told you that this was never meant for you. Your stomach was growling that night the same way it scrammed in your 90-pound body. You were only 14. Dia tres. You cannot recall that night because all you can think of was if your baby made it to the other side. Noche cuatro. You saw a woman cradling her 10-month-old baby, and oh, how much she questions God, God's existence at that moment. Right under his nose, he saw the suffering of a baby whose, wrong, whose fault was wrongly placed. The selfless woman refused to accept the emptiness of her breast. God, how do you let this happen? Dia cinco. The coyote slapped you in your face because you left the most, the most, your most prized possession, your savior at that moment, your water bottle. You pleaded with desperation. You pleaded with desperation, and you asked the man to give you a drop of water, just a drop of water. The stern slap reminded you of a punch directed towards your face with a closed fist, which belonged to the love of your life. He vowed to always love you, yet took you, took the innocence out of you as he pulled you into a dark room and beat you. You were only 17. The essays. A rosary was placed on your chest by your dry hands. Earlier that day, you found out that your 12-month-old baby had reached her destination. In that moment, you, were, you did not care that your body was slowly deteriorating. Your baby was on the other side. And in that moment, all worries were thrown out the door. Belinda was now in the land of liberation. Dia siete. Your knees are weak, your throat is dry, your hope has long been drained out by the strong rays of sunlight. You were almost there, almost there. You cracked a smile. With an aching soul, you again reached out to the Lord and asked 
and asks if this was the end of your voyage or the end of your existence. No answer. Reality hits you like yet another blow to your face. And finally, you jump the fence without knowing. You made it, Mama. This was for you a start of a new beginning. But was that really the case? Did you really come into a country that granted you life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? All I ever wanted was for your mother and my mother to be simply seen as life givers. Now, living in 2016, I'm living your inherited struggle, Mama. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. But for what? It has been denying my existence because I am not American enough. The system has told me case after case that it does not value the sacrifice and work, hard work you put into this country, but rather those who have money out in a lighter complexion. You have tried to hide it, and it just hurts you. Te suplico, mamá. Treasure your pain. Stand proud. I want you to scream your voice nice and loud so that every person who has tried to silence you shuts up. Stand as tall as you did when crossing that desert. You left everything that was irreplaceable chasing for that American dream. Mama, please let me carry your dream. Just let me be your voice. Thank you. Thank you, Mitsu. That was lovely. Coming up next, Tatum Becker, Sharon McCormick, and Lily Brown. When the Townies podcast continues. In my harbor, there I flow. I feel the undertow beneath my boat. In the clouds, a feather in the sky. But I, I tether to your Pages in the Sand from her album, Set Me Free. To learn more about the artists and music featured on the Townies Podcast, please visit thetowniespodcast.org. Out Loud, written and performed by Tatum Becker. My soft-spoken and eloquent friend Tatum has just the right amount of snark to make you feel truly loved and maybe just a little vindicated depending on the situation. Tatum's beautiful words and twisted characters now float effortlessly through the halls of UC Santa Cruz. When I was younger, my parents always tried to get me to go to church. For some time it worked because they could tempt me with the donuts they passed out afterwards. But once I found out they wouldn't give out seconds, I knew it was a fraud. In junior high, I joined youth group not to connect with God, but as an excuse to see my friends more after school. For my 16th birthday, my mom gave me a prayer candle with Jesus on it. The same night, I committed several sins and fell asleep looking at it on my windowsill. I don't believe in God, but that's not the point. 
When I was 13, I asked my parents what they thought about marriage equality. And they said that the sanctity of marriage was important. It wasn't a direct answer, but I understood that there wasn't room for me. Now I think their views have changed, which is lovely, but that's not the point. When I was 13, I was told if I cut my hair, guys wouldn't be attracted to me. I was told I'd look butch and I should wear dresses and smile more. I pierced my left ear and a girl on my soccer team told me that was the gay ear and I should have pierced the other. My best friend told me she felt uncomfortable around girls who like girls because she didn't want them to hit on her. I asked the counter lady at Rite Aid for pink hair dye and she told me I would look like a homo. When I was 16, a teacher told me that gay people are just confused and will change their minds. Fag, dyke, butch, and that's so gay. To my face or behind my back. And the homophobic asshole who sat, who sat behind me in history class. God damn it, Mrs. Reed, are you stupid or just deaf? And I just sit there, every single time, trying to avoid confrontation, being polite in some demented contemporary version of ladylike. But that's not the point. I'm just so tired. I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of being silent. I'm tired of rude people that think they understand. I'm tired of people trying to fix what I don't think is broken. I'm just so tired. Because standing on the outside of the situation, it's easy to say you support me, but once I'm your daughter, your sister, or your friend, you start to pull away because you don't like real. But I like girls, and that's fucking real. Nicely done, Tatum Becker. Choice, written and performed by Sharon McCormack. A gentle soul with a heart the size of the moon and a smile capable of illuminating every square inch of our tiny town. You gotta love a neighbor that leaves everything just a little bit sparkly. I'm normally quite a happy soul. <laughs> I've even been known to make people laugh. But right now, I feel an underlying angst, not only in myself, but in everyone around me, no matter which side of which issue they're on. And because this moment feels different from all other times, in order to move forward, I've been forced to dig deeply into my past. I was born and raised in the Mississippi Delta during segregation. My childhood home was not exactly ideal. My parents married when Daddy was 21, Mama 19, way too young. They were ill-suited. My mother had been a teenage actress in Texas. My father promised her he would take her to New York one year after helping my grandfather's business get back on its feet. They never left Greenwood. My mother's heartbreak, resentment, and bitterness informed everything. Daddy withdrew emotionally and as much as possible physically. He went to work in the morning. After supper, he went into his photography darkroom and closed the door. I was terrified of both of them. My only, what I would call nurturing, came from the African-American women and men who worked for my family, either at home or at the store, the, the family business or who worked for friends' families. Callie cooked and cleaned for my grandparents, two other unhappy humans. How Callie lasted all those years, I will never know. My grandmother treated her shamefully. My grandfather, a lazy, sour, miserly curmudgeon, never finished a meal without saying, nastiest food I ever tasted. I loved Callie. She'd let me sit on the stool in the kitchen and help her sometimes. While I stirred the cornbread batter, she doted on me. I still miss her cornbread sticks. Lincoln, who worked in our yard, taught me how to ride a bike when I was five. I cannot imagine how many times he ran up and down the driveway holding onto the back of my little bike. When I'd fall, he'd pick me up and commiserate with me about my skinned elbow or knee. Then he'd laugh and say, okay, Miss Sharon, time to try again. Miss Sharon. I was in kindergarten. He was a grown man. 
Pat, who worked at the store, had served in World War II. He always had a big smile and a crisp salute for me when I was there. I loved him, too. When my uncle died in the mid-1990s, Pat and I shared a chair in the Baptist Church's small rec hall during the crowded reception after the funeral. We received many askance looks, but this is the church that believes there are two heavens, one white, one black. During my visits home before Pat died, I'd go to see him at his house on the other side of town. My aunts were always aghast that I'd braved crossing the tracks. One day, I finally asked Pat a question that had bothered me for years. Did Daddy treat you and Clyde differently than the white men who worked for them? Instant answer, no, he never did, or Mac. I was so proud of my father. But what a surprise about Mac, my mean old granddaddy. Pat had called my grandfather Mac, not Mr. Mac, probably the first and only time he ever said that to a white person. It felt sort of like winning a medal. And the others, I asked Pat, all I got was a rueful smile. That meant my grandmother, uncle, and two aunts, all of whom used the N-word easily and often, had stayed true to their roots. One day, a friend and I were riding in her Aunt Jean's green 50s Cadillac. We passed a woman walking, and Sis said something about the colored lady. Jean slammed on the brakes and whipped her head around. Colored woman, there are no colored ladies. And then there was Aurelia, an elderly woman. An elderly woman. She was my mother's maid when I was in high school. One night, she simply lost it. God only knows what a lifetime in Greenwood had done to her. A gentle, meticulously neat lady, she went berserk and completely trashed her own house. Obviously, a complete mental breakdown. Because African Americans could not be admitted to the public hospital, she was locked in a cell in the jail in the basement of the courthouse, the one with the Confederate memorial on the lawn, for three days until her son could come down from Chicago to take her back with him. You crossed my mother at your own peril, but I begged her to do something for Aurelia. She said there was nothing she could do. These were all human beings who stepped off the sidewalk if a person came the other way, who never looked a white person in the eye, who, if they were in the middle of shopping and a white person came into a store, they stepped back and waited while the white person was served, whose children were not allowed to go to school with me. And so, because they were the people from whom I received love and whom I loved, I realized pretty early in life, there is no capital O other. Then along came the civil rights movement, thank God, and almost the entire white South freaked out. <laughs> Soon after the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, I was spending the night at a friend's house on her grandmother's plantation when we heard cars approaching, but no headlights. It was late and we were supposed to be asleep, but we peeked through the curtains to see what was going on. Several men turned off their engines and silently walked into the house. I was afraid it was a Klan meeting. Much later, I discovered that my friend's father was organizing a local branch of the Republican Party. It didn't take long for the solidly democratic white South, the reaction to Abraham Lincoln's ending slavery, to make a 180 to the Republicans. Two of the most notorious murders of that era hit close to home. In the summer of 55, Emmett Till, a 14-year-old from Chicago, visited his family in the Delta. Accused of sassing a white woman, two men beat and tortured him before shooting him and tossing his body into the Tallahatchie River, five miles from my house. The second the two men were acquitted, they bragged that they'd done it. In 1963, 37-year-old Mississippi civil rights leader Medgar Evers was assassinated in his driveway with his wife and children inside the house for the crime of registering American citizens to vote. Everyone in town knew that a local man, someone my father had gone all the way through school with, had killed him. 
Big Delay, as he was known, was arrested. A defense line was immediately set up in Greenwood for him. A few days later, his son, Little Delay, drove into our high school parking lot in a brand new Pontiac with Confederate flag seat covers. Big Delay received two trials. Both ended in hung juries. After the second trial was over, at a time when my parents were worried about our safety, they took my brother and me to the banks of the Tallahatchie to practice shooting. As kids, French and I had shot BB guns at tin cans, and I'd taken riflery at summer camp, so I already knew how to handle a gun. We threw paper plates into the river and aimed at them as they floated down the current. Moving targets. Suddenly we heard a weird bang behind us. Our heads turned. Big delay stood by a tree holding a shotgun. The end of the barrel was peeled back. He'd stuffed mud into the barrel, tied the gun to a tree, put a string on the trigger and walked away and pulled. As we walked back to the car, he hailed mom and daddy to tell them how pleased he was that they were teaching us to shoot because we really need to know how when the race war broke out. It made my skin crawl, as it does today. I haven't touched a gun since. In the early 90s, new evidence surfaced in the Medgar Evers case. After going free for 30 years, in 94, Big Delay was put on trial again. I will never forget the night the news came on TV that he had finally been convicted. He spent the rest of his life in prison. Starting with the Civil Rights Movement and moving along to Vietnam, and when I lived in London, Northern Ireland, which is so like Mississippi in so many ways, I kept working to hopefully broaden people's perspective on inclusion. Sometimes the efforts had an effect, sometimes not. But it always felt like a fight, a fight full of anger. Then on May 1st, 2009, I had an experience that forever changed my life. It sent me down a completely different path because I changed. Not only did I drop out of the political activist arena, I learned more about love and joy and peace and fun in those seven and a half years than I had in the 60 plus before that. I really felt like my fighting days were over. And then came 2016. <laughs> <laughs> the presidential campaign took hold and all the old anger around bigotry and injustice and brutality resurfaced. All the old fears around people I love being harmed. I tried so hard to temper the anger and the fear with love. I'd succeed, and then something would happen that brought everything boiling back up to the surface. But I forged ahead with my positive heart stuff. My tipping point turned out to be Standing Rock. My stomach churns at what's happening there. In my universe, there truly is no other. How many thousands of potential Aurelias are standing up for their rights and for Mother Earth, on whom we all depend? And yet, although I struggle back and forth, up and down, with my emotions and my actions, I also know that this is not a question of coming full circle back to the anger of my childhood and youth, but realizing it's more of a spiral. Because as I come back around to the starting point, I feel that both my heart and my mind have gone up at least one level. <laughs> I found the hope I'd been looking for in the worldwide movement of the people at Standing Rock, the worldwide movement they have sparked. And for me to now continue to move forward, I get to choose between anger and love, fear and love, my choice. Mine. And that was Sharon McCormick. Psalm 43 plus 1. Written and performed by our totally fabulous podcast co-producer, Lily Brown political and hopeful and feminist and philanthropist and outspoken and wow she has just taken my breath away from the moment we met in the delivery room 23 years ago my daughter my hero lily brown
Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Dear President Barack Hussein Obama, <laughs> I am a woman and I totally super voted for you. <laughs> Only once, but I wish with every fiber of my being that I had been old enough in 2008 to say it was twice. I was so excited I shook as I mailed in my ballot. I have a video on my phone of my entire 600 person college crammed into the student center, leaping to their feet, shouting at the TV as they announced your name, and I was louder than any of them. <laughs> I love you. I love the Obamas. I have been in constant awe of all of you and how delightfully normal and yet completely extraordinary you are. Incessantly wishing ever so much that Michelle might be my president someday too. President Michelle and I, her chief of staff who cherishes her fashion advice. <laughs> I have seriously considered also applying for an internship at the American Consulate in Spain so that Malia and I can meet and be the best friends I already know we are. <laughs> Sharing paella and secrets at a tapas restaurant. <laughs> I imagine being a sort of mentor inspiration for Sasha who follows me around the White House as I complete action items for Mrs. President Michelle Obama. God, that has such a good ring to it. I dream every day of seeing you speak. Like, I know the final correspondence dinner already happened, but I think we could pull off another one. And honestly, I think I deserve it since I sobbed all the way through the last one and missed all the jokes. <laughs> I have benefited from policy that you have written, co-written, overseen, vetoed, executively ordered. I have learned through you, through Michelle and Malia and Sasha, that change is possible. Mr. President, you have been harbinger, initiator, navigator, car salesman of change, sneakily adding more to the package than we thought we were paying for. I am a woman in America. I am strong, maybe not spiritually, but I'm trying. I am smart, I speak three languages, Spanish being one of them, just like Malia. BFFs, I'm telling you. I am dedicated both to my country and my loved ones. I am opinionated about most things. I'm informed about some things. I'm a woman in America. And I try not to complain, especially not to you, Mr. President, and I don't really like to ask for help in general, but I'm asking. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Each day I am told that my body is not mine. Maybe not outright, but actions speak louder than words. Not mine because of what my body can create, and yet bodies like mine are displayed on billboards as objects that create nothing. That create nothing but violence against we women because our bodies are just toys, are just beer bottles, are just strip clubs, are just blue jeans, except when our bodies create except when our bodies are used without permission, because what is permission when a judge says he's an athlete? My body is not mine, and I'm a woman in America. I look around and I remind myself that I do not have it as bad as another woman in another place, but I don't think that means that I should stay silent until we're all equally under one thumb. Here, I'm a woman who can say what I want without persecution, but I'm a slut and a bitch and not a lady, whatever that means. Here, I am a woman who can wear what I want without persecution, but I can be asking for something I'm not asking for, whatever that means. I'm a woman in America. A woman watching time and time again as black men are shot down. Shot down selling CDs, shot down reaching for a license, another man reaching for a license, reaching for a license, for a license, for moving too fast. Shot down for playing with a toy in a parking lot. A woman watching time and time again as black women are shot down, and we don't even say their names. Tanisha Anderson, Miriam Carey, Yvette Smith, Rekia Boyd, Alexia Christian, Kiam Livingston, Ayana Jones, seven years old. Woman after woman after child, too many to name right now. I am a white woman in America. I don't have to fear for my life, or my husband's life, or my mother's, my father's, my brother's, who's 6'2 and a little on the rebellious side. I will never know that fear. And I know that's not fair. 
I am a woman in America. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is Psalm 43. Psalm 43, because I thought you were the 43rd president. <laughs> and I looked it up, and it fit perfect. And when I found out you were 44, 44 didn't fit so good. So we're calling this Psalm 43 plus one. <laughs> the truth is, Mr. President, I'm completely lost. And yet, through all of this bad and all of this weird and all of this, I'm not sure how we got here that's happening all around us. I know I can look to you. The truth is, Mr. President, I'm completely lost. I don't know if I'm asking for help or guidance or salvation, but I feel like we're fighting against waves with the size and relentless nature of tsunamis, and some people are pretending like they can't see them, and the rest of us are arguing, not swimming or finding higher ground. I feel like you'll know what to say here, because when I was 10 years old, I had no faith in our government. A government who taught me that the way to deal with tragedy in plane crashes and loss in flames is to take it and make it worse where we think it came from when it turns out didn't come from there anyway. People have been saying a lot lately that words are cheap and they're tired of talking, and while I understand that actions can speak louder than words, I don't buy that. Words, stories, are the only thing that we have in common. When we are so divided, when we are so broken, our stories are the glue that can bind us, connect us, tell us what to do. These last eight years, you have showed me to have faith again. I told you I'm trying. Forgive me, but I'm going to quote you to yourself. <laughs> if you had to choose one moment in history in which you could be born and you didn't know ahead of time who you were going to be, what nationality, what gender, what race, whether you'd be rich or poor, gay or straight, what faith you'd be born into, you wouldn't choose 100 years ago. You wouldn't choose the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. You'd choose right now. I'm a better person, a better woman, a better American because of the time and place you have created in our country with your words and your policy and your damn light leading us over this endless mountain of progress and pain and progress and pain. I don't think you're God. I'm not crazy. I'm not delusional. Anyway, that's a lot of pressure, and I'm pretty sure God doesn't send drones to the Middle East, but this is a prayer, not a critique, so I'm just gonna keep going. I think you're my preacher, and I think you've been writing a new psalm that's better than 43 plus one, and I hope you keep writing it long after I've had to vote for someone else and someone else and someone else, even if I wish I never had to vote for anyone but you because there's still so much to fix. I still have so much to ask you. I still have so much to learn from you. And Michelle and Malia and Sasha, I am a woman in America, America right now, and I already miss you. Love, Lily Brown of California's 26th. That's a way to close an episode, Lily Brown. I'm from here. Here's the story. Please join us every other Tuesday for a new round of freshly minted stories. 
I am Kim Maxwell of Kim Maxwell Studio, and we teach people to launch their stories loudly and unapologetically into the world, to laugh more, risk more, and have bigger lives. The Townies Podcast is co-produced by Lily Brown, Asa Larmonth, and Ken Eros. Studio engineering and mixing by Eros Creative and Sound. The Townies theme song was written and performed by Rain Perry, recorded and mixed by Martin Young, and mastered by Mark Hallman at the Congress House. The Townies podcast is in part made possible by a generous grant from the Ojai Arts Commission and the City of Ojai, a small town with big stories. You can find out more about us at thetowniespodcast.org. Thank you for listening. All right. Let me know when you're ever you're ready. Always ready. <laughs> <laughs> Is this where I'm supposed to say that's what she said? Is that what happens that's in the studio? That's what she said. <laughs>